Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, y'all. I'm Maggie Freeling, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the host of Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. And this is a bonus episode of Bone Valley. So I'm here with Gilbert King and Kelsey Decker. And I'm going to ask them some of my questions, some of your questions, all about the behind the scenes of Bone Valley. So Gilbert and Kelsey, hello. Hey, Maggie. How you doing? I'm good. How are y'all? Good. Really good. So one of my first questions is, as someone who has done projects like this, it takes a lot of time. But you guys started working on this quite a while ago. So can you tell me when you started working on this, how much time you spent in Florida? What was that like? Yeah, I'll say it it took us over four years to do this. So, you know, obviously we worked through COVID. And so that that sort of slowed us down. There were a few things that slowed us down. We were trying to reach Jeremy Scott and he was constantly being put in disciplinary confinement. And then with COVID. So we there we were a lot of waiting around as well. But I would say we kept ourselves pretty busy with this. We had the extra time. We were a lot of waiting. So we just try to do more and more research and, and just keep digging. And, and so that was our experience why, why it took so long. Right. And and because I remember at one point you said like, oh, this is a letter, you know, from our first letter to Jeremy in like, what was it, 2019 you wrote him or 2018? Yeah, I think it was like, I think the first time we wrote him was like early 2020, like during the pandemic. And he didn't respond for seven months. And I think we sent out a bunch of letters, finally just started writing back to us. So. And you guys moved to Florida? Go ahead, Kelsey. You can tell about the big move with your pickup truck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we moved to Florida for about three months. It was the summer of 2019. Yeah. I have, yeah, summer of 2019. So we were there for a few months. We, um, our kind of like home base there was St. Petersburg. We weren't entirely sure we wanted to spend all of our time in Lakeland, but we were making the drive back and forth quite a bit. But yeah, it was uh, it, it was an interesting start to like the real reporting in the case, just, you know, being down there in the midst of it. So 
It's kind of important to do that. You know, when I did my podcast, Murder and Alliance, which was investigating a wrongful conviction, I pretty much lived in Ohio for a good year. Um, Did locals know you guys? Like, what was that like? Yeah, we would run into the same people. Our home base, a lot of times... We, were, we would drive, it was about 45 minutes from St. Pete to Lakeland, and our home base became the Lakeland Public Library. And they actually gave us a room in there that we would use for interviews. So it worked out really well. And, and there's also some, a lot of research to do in Lakeland from you know historical research that was right in the library. But I remember that as just being a lot of fun and every morning, like just getting up and uh, you know drinking coffee on the way, going across the Skyway Bridge and just driving to Lakeland and just like doing prep in the car for the interviews that we were having to do that day. And uh, it just, it was really a fun like commute to actually have to do that. And I think, yeah, we started running into a lot of people that we'd known. There was one point, I don't know if you remember this, Kelsey, where I, I was kind of not paying attention and I almost ran over a guy around one of those lakes. And oh uh, he was a, yeah, yeah, he was a guy that I just, <laughs> I just spoke, I did a, I did a talk down there, some legal talk and I, we made eye contact that I knew, I knew I know him. And I sent him a little quick email. I said, Hey, sorry, I think I just tried to run you over. And he was like, I knew that was you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, listeners do want to know though, if Gilbert, your familiarity with Florida from your other book, Devil in the Grove, if any of those connections helped you with this case. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say they did. You know, there's a lot of people, like I, I did two books down there. So I sp- I've spent about 15 years down there in this part of wow. central Florida. And so a lot of people know me and, and I think there's like a benefit to having some connections. Like, you know, sometimes we'll be writing something and trying to figure out something in terms of like a Supreme Court, Florida Supreme Court decision. And I'm not really entirely sure what the, you know, what to make of the decision. And like there are, I'm friendly with some of the Florida Supreme Court justices, so I can actually call them up and say, hey, can you explain your your opinion in that particular case? And so there's a lot of that local stuff that I think yeah. um, really paid off. And, and, and same with, um, you know, just having going down there and speaking all the time. I run into a lot of people that I know and they, they seem more eager to help me, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Kelsey, this was all really new to you. You were pretty much just out of college and now you're eyeballs deep in a really crazy wrongful conviction case, murder case, another murder case. What was all this like for you? (laughs) Um, You know, I just kind of had to take it a day at a time sometimes. um, Because yeah, every every phase of this project was something just entirely new for me. Um, But you know, having Having Gilbert there, there was always support. He uh, he was my cheerleader every step of the way. So um, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience. Like first job, I think this is, you know, maybe kind of a dream job for a lot of people. And here I am like right out of college, just diving right into it. So I felt very lucky in a lot of ways, but there were definitely moments where I felt um, I was in a little over my head, <laughs> having to kind of learn some of the stuff as I went along, but um, here I am. I made it, and <laughs> I'm, you know, really happy. I've been able to see it through to the end, and yeah, I mean, I just care so much about the story. It was something I just, you know, was very motivated to continue learning and committing to and putting everything I could into it. So, how did your relationship, the two of you, 
how did it change over the course of four years? I mean, that's a long time. And Kelsey, again, like you were very new. So I'm sure by the end you were a rock star investigator. But so how did it all change? Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the thing with this is like I have a lot of researchers and they're based in New York and they're actually guys who are older than me. And like it just for them to just upend themselves and move down to Florida was just not going to happen for them. You know, they had families, they have commitments. And, and and so you really need somebody who has the flexibility to do something like this. And, um, so I think Kelsey came in as, as a researcher, basically, I had a couple different projects going and, um, and, and I remember specifically, I was trying to decide, like there was a TV thing, a new book, and I was trying to prioritize. And then the, Leo's case came across my desk and Kelsey started looking into it. And I remember there was a moment I said, well, well, Kelsey, like, what, what do you think I should prioritize? What project? And I remember her specifically saying like, well, it looks like there's an innocent man in prison, that one. And it was just like this moment of clarity, like, yeah, of course we have to do that one. And so mm-hmm. that was really the inspiration to get going. And you know, Kelsey started as a researcher, but because like we decided to pivot to a podcast while we were down there, um, you know, she had to learn all the audio recording and, and sort of it was all self-taught. And so like she's moving through this, going from researcher to, you know, audio recordist to producer and to all these different um, skills that she had to learn for this job. So they really need somebody flexible and somebody who's not afraid of learning. And she was it. Wow. Would you agree with all that, Kelsey? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have much to lose with upending my entire life and going down to Florida and learning everything on the job. Well, were yeah. you nervous like to go down just like you and Gilbert? Not that he's a terrifying human, but like, you know, I, I'm you you didn't know him that well. Like was that weird to start off just like the two of you? Yeah, it was it was a little weird, but uh, <laughs> we we fell into like a rhythm pretty quickly. I mean, by that time we'd already we were already both like very invested in this case and this story. So um, yeah, I mean, we, we were so obsessed with it at that point. We were talking about it constantly. Um, And so like, it felt pretty natural after a little time passed. And um, I'm actually, I was born in Florida. So also like the landscape there is was kind of familiar to me. I have some family down there. So there was like a little bit of familiarity in that aspect as well. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So where were you both like coming from? You were coming from New York, Gilbert. Is that, are you from New York? Yeah, I'm originally from upstate New York, but I've been in, I've been in New York for the last 30 something years. So yeah, I'm I'm a New Yorker, but yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm really used to Florida. I think there was some, you know, weird things of like, when we were like basically roommates for a couple months. And like, I think Kelsey was like, am I supposed to cook? Is that part of my job? Like, <laughs> like realized like, ah, he doesn't cook. He just eats out all the time. It's true. <laughs> yeah. New Yorker. Like, yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, um, it was, it was, a, it was an adjustment, especially, but once we built into the schedule and like, we'd stay home, do all the phone calls, do all the prep work there, and then just go out in the field in Lakeland. And it was really nice to be able to get away from, Polk County and just be working outside of Polk County because I don't really like working in the counties that, you know, cause then people start snooping around and they, they know where you are and you see, see them around and they know where you are. I didn't want to deal with that. So. Right. Right. So, so getting to the case, um, did you go into this skeptical of his innocence? I mean, I know this came across your desk from a very reputable person, um, a former judge, you know, 
honestly, did you go into it thinking, okay, this is an innocent man? Or how did you guys go into this? Were you ever skeptical of his innocence? I, I'm always skeptical. And even though that, that this came to me through a judge, I just, it's not that I don't trust anybody, but I just have to like know for myself that I'm going into something that I know enough about it. And so there were months that went by where it was just research and you know, it did, it did help that judge cup was vouching for him. Um, but I think I, I try to put a timetable on this. I think it was, you know, at least weeks before I said, oh, it really looks like this guy could really be innocent. Mm. And, you know, from reading from the transcript, it was, it was pretty obvious to me that they, he was not rightfully convicted. Um, but once we got down there and met Leo and, and started doing our own real deep research on it, it was pretty clear to us that we were dealing with an innocent man. Kelsey, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think before we met Leo for the very first time, we tried to read everything we could get our hands on. And so we had a really good understanding of, yeah, of like how the trial went, what evidence was there. But, you know, you you never, you never really know, like, everything doesn't come out in court, he could be wrongfully convicted and not necessarily be innocent. I think there is a little bit of a distinction there. Well, yeah, what is going... that distinction then for listeners? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, Gilbert might be better at explaining this. This is a distinction Judge Scott Cup drew, you know, the very first time I met him and probably the first time Gilbert spoke to him as well, that, um, you know, stuff can stuff can go wrong at trial. Like, prosecutors can do shady things and it can somebody can be convicted on bad evidence or I don't know yeah it, I mean things can go wrong but maybe they actually did do the crime or maybe they had some knowledge of it or something like that this you know in Leo's case he wasn't there he didn't do it he didn't know anything about it which I think is where at least Judge Scott Cup would draw the line at like, you know, he's innocent. He didn't know anything about it. He wasn't there. But yeah, so so we had all of that, all of the like documentation, that information and in going in to meet Leo. And then I think, you know, that first meeting after hearing him speak, that kind of really solidified things for us that it was like, it was really hard for us to kind of wrap our head around how he could be guilty after that first meeting. So, yeah, that that's a really good point. And I think sometimes you can get to a point where the prosecutor just doesn't prove his case beyond a reasonable doubt, but you know, a person can still be guilty. And so that was one of the things that I was trying to always consider, but I think what made this case really interesting is you have this other person involved in this who is actually confessed to the murder. And so the, the investigation starts to go to him too. And I remember just specifically having a thought like, if Leo, if I ever catch him lying to me, or if I, he was trying to mislead me or being really not transparent about certain things, that's going to lead to more skepticism. And I just, to, to devote this much time and energy to a case that could fall apart on me. You know, I, I think back on the, the NAACP and the, and when they were doing these cases in the forties and fifties, they couldn't afford a single loss. So when they were going down there and, and defending innocent people, they had to make sure that that person was innocent because a loss would be too damaging. And you certainly don't want that coming back on us. Um, but you know, once, once we were aware of who Jeremy Scott was and we started investigating him, it became not only a, a problem, you know, a, a situation where Leo's not only innocent, but it's this guy, this guy did it. And that was what was really intriguing to us. 
I'm Maggie Freeling, checking in with Gilbert King and Kelsey Decker from Bone Valley, and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please go to lavaforgood.com survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. Bone Valley is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest change makers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems, including the broken criminal justice system. Christina Dent is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to end the war on drugs, the underlying cause of many problems such as over-incarceration and the criminalization of addiction in communities across the country. As a foster mom, Christina came into contact with the war on drugs when she saw how it was ripping apart the family she worked with. She witnessed how kids were affected and how mothers wanted something better for their families but didn't have the tools to get there themselves. Christina Dent started a nonprofit called End It For Good because she knew there was a better solution to help these families. She's working to end the war on drugs in Mississippi and build consensus around the state to help families struggling with substance abuse problems find a different path forward than the one they've been given. Stand Together has many more stories like this one as it partners with thousands of changemakers who are driving solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and the criminal justice system. To learn more about the war on drugs, Listen to the War on Drugs podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the more powerful moments for a lot of listeners was in Chapter 2 when you go to the evidence room together. What was that like and why was that so emotional, particularly for you, Kelsey? Yeah. um, So I think by the time we went and viewed those photos, we'd already been down in Florida for a couple months. We'd spoken to Leo a number of times we'd spoken to you know a lot of the people you hear in the podcast already so um you know by that point I was pretty deep into the story and you know I felt like I did have kind of a sense of who Michelle was and you know she by that point you know she really felt like somebody I knew to some degree and I think just going there like I knew some of what we were going to be seeing but I don't know it's it's just it's hard to be prepared for you know actually seeing the the violence and um yeah I I I don't know just the the trauma and the violence of all of it, just really the brutality. It, it just, I don't know. It, it really hit me. The and, brutality of it. Um, yeah. 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 And there's just also something about, you know, going through and having this lead up to the evidence. They're showing us all the physical evidence, the, the, 
the plywood that's resting on her body. We're seeing the downy bottle that was smeared with blood. And then you start and seeing clothing too. the clothing. Yeah. That start, then you start seeing all the blood stains on that and the, and the tears and the rips from the knife. Um, and then, you know, the, the, finally they bring out the pictures from the autopsy and, you know, it's just, it, it, you, you feel like you, you've seen pictures of her now. You've talked to her family members. You've talked to Leo, you talked to Michelle's brother and it's just hard to get that out of your head. And I, I think, you know, we're always doing debriefings and, and just keeping the, the recorder going. And I think just we got back to the car and like Kelsey made it through all of that, the whole evidence room. But I think it just like sort of snuck up on her and, and hit her. I don't know. I, but mm-hmm. you held off through the whole through the whole evidence room. But it was just, you know, you got away from it and that's where yeah. it hit you, I guess. But I think sometimes it's the processing, you know, like I I tell our producers, like when I'm doing these interviews, you know, as a journalist, Gilbert and Kelsey, now you'll know too, like you just sometimes have this wall up to get through it. And then it's after the fact when I go back and I'm transcribing and I'm listening to the interview that yeah. I'm like, oh, now I'm processing it. And it's really hitting what what was said or what you're looking at. Definitely. That's a really good point. That happens to me a lot too. And I'm sort of, you know, you're in the moment, but you're asking questions, you're thinking of things to ask, you're trying to get into the flow of the interview and you're in a different space. And then you go back and listen to it. We had the same experience with, with Jeremy, just going back and listening to it. It just, it sounded even more powerful than it did when we were there Mm -hmm. in person, just hearing his voice crack and and the, the the pain and torture that he was feeling. It it almost like flew by me a little bit while we were in the room, but, but boy, well, sometimes it does. And that's like for listeners to know, like when you're in that room, you're really like, well, I got to get this question. And is Mm -hmm. my tape recorder working? Like it is very hard to do 80,000 things and focus on the interview and process it all at once. So yeah, definitely what listeners are hearing is is very crafted for yeah. sure. Yeah. And you know, we did so much prep for that that interview just by the way, you know, and and it was I think it was clearly the best interview we've ever done. Like it it was the last one we did basically, but it was the best one. I think we were so prepared for it and we were just working off each other and and he was being so responsive to both of us. It was a really incredible thing to go back and listen to that and think, "Wow, I cannot believe yeah. we got all that out of him." Are you still in touch with Jeremy? Yeah, um, he's really difficult to reach. Again, he wrote me a letter. Um, it was a couple of months ago. I hadn't heard from him in a long time. It was a really short message, and he said, "You know, dear Mr. King, I don't hold a grudge against you for doing this story. I wish you the best, but the monster in me is coming out, and I'm going to be locked up for a long time." And I was like, "What is this? You know, this was a short." note that I got from him and then found out like a couple days later, he was involved in some kind of altercation with a weapon Mm. and he got moved to a different prison and put in solitary confinement. Don't really know the details of it, but he's locked up for a long time. So I don't know, you know, that's kind of the life he's led in prison. It's, It's extraordinarily violent, extraordinarily impulsive. He gets moved around constantly. There's psychiatric issues, but I do try to stay in touch with him. And we just got another letter from him last week. And so he, he, was writing again. So I'm going to stay in touch with him. I think I'm the only one who's writing to him. Well, let me ask you about that because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are going to go, why? He's a violent, horrible, murderous person. Why stay in touch with him? You know, I I, I don't know a really great answer to that other than he is a human being and he exposed part of himself and, you know, really came clean about 
the the nightmares that he has and the punishment that he's feeling and the torture he's having. And I do believe that he's trying to help himself by clearing his conscience of this. And also I think he's trying to help Leo. And I just see that as something admirable and Leo is mm -hmm. thankful for it. And basically we, we follow Leo's lead on a lot of these kind of moral and ethical decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely something I care about. Like, I don't, I, I do want to stay in touch with Jeremy. I know, like, I never want to downplay all of the harm he's caused, but I feel for Jeremy too. Like, he's, he's had it really rough. He, he really never had a chance in life. And as much harm as he's caused, I still feel like I don't know. He, he deserves a little compassion. And, and I, you know, I, yeah, I, I agree with Gilbert. He's, he's trying to tell the truth, I think. And I think he's genuine and he's remorseful. And um, I don't know. I, I want him to know that that's not going unnoticed. Like I, I want him to know that he's doing a good thing and he's doing the right thing. And, um, and he should be proud of that. I think, you know, that's probably why all of us are on this network, because not only are we journalists, but we're also humans and we recognize the humanity in people. And I think all of us would agree that nobody is defined by the worst day of their life. And I think, you know, I think that's really beautiful that you guys put in Jeremy's story and took so much care to show that he was once a kid and you know, he became a product of his environment, which is really, really tragic. And um, I really appreciate you guys putting that in there. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's taken responsibility for his acts. He's confessed to the, all the murders he's committed. Um, he knows he's not ever getting out of prison. He sh really shouldn't get out of prison. He's extraordinarily violent and impulsive. But, you know, it doesn't mean we still can't care for him and wish for him the best in the rest of his days. And the fact that he has nobody to talk to and you know i'm the only one he's writing to you know that comes with some kind of responsibility you know i'm i don't want to be his best friend but i do want to be there and, and talk to him and, and listen to him and you know who knows what else he'll say sure speaking of probably one of the craziest things besides the actual killer confessing to the murder that someone else is in prison for is that you come across another murder while investigating Michelle's murder. Where is that investigation at? Will anyone, Jeremy, ever be prosecuted for that? You know, this is maddening to me because we went several times to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office with our evidence and with our letters um, where Jeremy started taking responsibility for killing this cab driver, Joseph LeVere. Um, It wasn't just his confession. We had other evidence that we put together, um, stuff that didn't even make it into the podcast because, it, you know, we didn't really feel the need to like expand on this forever after he confessed. But we brought it in a couple times. We brought it into the state attorney's office and um, they basically have just refused to investigate it, which I just find flabbergasting, actually. It's, it's clear evidence. They have a confession and they basically double down in their response by saying that um, we believe that we prosecuted the right guy in Dan Odie, but he wasn't convicted by the jury, but we still think he's the murderer. And, you know, for me, that's annoying because these prosecutors are always talking about finality in the justice system. You got to respect the jury's verdict. But here they are smearing a man who's been acquitted and, and calling him a murderer because it doesn't fit their narrative. I don't know why they're not investigating it. it it's it's just... um. It's beyond me to, to understand why they're doing that. 
Have you talked to Joseph Lever's family? You know, that's been a really tricky thing. We've tried tracking him down. I've sent messages. They're scattered all over. It was a broken family. Joseph had gotten divorced about a year before he was murdered. And so the family just kind of scattered. He had a young son at the time who was maybe one or two years old and tried to find him, but he's uh, locked away in jail as well. And I just haven't been able to reach him. So we haven't had any luck trying to get Joseph Lavera's family. And there's some other reporters who have tried to and have not been able to reach him. But that's definitely something we're going to continue to pursue because I don't believe justice has been served in that case. So, Kelsey, something listeners want to know about is you were always asking Gilbert about his feelings. Why did you do that? Was that just instinctual? Like, what was up with asking Gilbert about his feelings? Yeah, all the time? Um, I suppose it was kind of instinctual. Like, you know, I had a feeling that we were there on the ground, we were doing the work. And, you know, in some ways, the listener is going to look to us to kind of interpret what's going mm-hmm. on and, and what we're seeing and finding out. And, and some of that is sharing what we're feeling and how we're processing it. And um, yeah, you know, Gilbert started to get the hang of it. You know, it didn't come incredibly natural for him, <laughs> but um, but we made some progress there, I think. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a learning curve. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I imagine Gilbert in your other reporting, no one's usually putting a mic in your face and saying, how do you feel about this? No, I hate, you know, there's that line in The Departed where they say, where um, talk about Freud says that the Irish are immune to therapy. It just doesn't work on the Irish. I, that's who I feel is like, what are you asking me my feelings for? Who cares? Um, yeah, it's it's an awkward thing. And, you know, there's also a lot of compartmentalization that I've tried to do in, in this kind of stuff. Like, if you get really emotional and, and thinking about the humanity and the pain and, and all these waves of violence in the story, it, it can really kind of paralyze you. And so I always kind of put that stuff in the back and just try to be in the moment with this stuff. And so I think it was really kind of funny when Kelsey's asking me these questions about my feelings and I'm just, you know, doing logistical stuff mm-hmm. and, and just, yeah, I, I didn't really ever get the hang of it. It's just awful at that kind of stuff. Well, it's funny because listeners seem to think you loved answering and talking about your feelings. So oh. surprise <laughs> listeners, he did not. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, so people love Bone Valley and it's been my favorite podcast of the year. Why do you think so many people are responding to Bone Valley? You know, there's a million podcasts out there about cases, murders, wrongful convictions. Why are people resonating with Bone Valley? You know, I'll just take a quick stab at it, but I think it it comes back to the work you did with Suave when it has heart. Suave has heart. That story has a lot of heart. And I think, you know, that was in our heads too. Like we wanted to tell a story with heart and we want it to be, you know, emotional, not just a a true crime, like procedural. We wanted you to Mm -hmm. care about the people. And I think because we spent so much time with our subjects and, and got to know them so well. And they were so comfortable talking that you begin to care about people like Chrissy, um, not just Leo, but just people in the story. And I don't know, I, I just think there's a, there's a human and emotional um, connection to this story that felt real while we were working on it the whole time. Well, and that goes back to, you know, the whole being compassionate to Jeremy. You know, if you had just treated him like a subject and not a human, I highly doubt we would be where we are with any of the information you got from him. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, like it, it's just, there, I don't think there's much 
interesting in black and white, good versus evil. There's a lot of those gray areas. And, you know, Leo has his own gray areas, right? It's really, in the beginning, it's really hard to feel sympathetic for him when you hear all this, you know, bad character evidence coming in. And he's talking about, you know, his relationship with Michelle. It's not, not, not a perfect relationship. They're a young couple. They have their issues. It gets a little volatile at times. So Leo's not like the fuzzy bunny of wrongful convictions. And Jeremy, you know, Leo doesn't think Jeremy's the monster he was looking for. And I think that's what really makes it interesting. Mm. How do you, how do you think, you know, how does Leo feel about Jeremy now today? Um, Leo is, I think Leo is very grateful that Jeremy is telling the truth and that Jeremy is trying to do what he can to correct this injustice. And I think, you know, Leo, Leo cares about Jeremy as another human being. I think, you know, kind of like us, Leo sees Jeremy as somebody who who deserves respect for for being a human and you know despite all of the terrible things he's done and um i know that leo still prays for jeremy and and thinks about jeremy and um yeah i, I don't know i don't know what else to add to that yeah. but yeah. And I think it's just a, a, a testament to, to Leo's character and, you know, who he is as a person, you know, in the prison, he's like extraordinarily educated. Now he's a mentor to a lot of young inmates who come in the jails, the prison looks to him to sort of guide people who are having a difficult time. And he served as a mentor. There's times when we've talked to him and we talk about getting out and he'll say like, I'm not sure I can actually leave this place because there's so many people counting on me. It's like a family. And, and we've talked to so many people that who have, who've echoed that to us. And it's just so natural for him to actually even care about Jeremy's mental well-being and spiritual health. Yeah, absolutely. So has Leo heard the podcast? No, he's not able to hear the podcast, which is really interesting to us because he, um, he's getting, Every day he gets people coming into him, like guards, administrators, outside contractors. He works in maintenance at the prison he's at. And so he has a lot of dealing with the outside world. And, you know, he, I talked to him on the phone just the other day and, you know, he said, Gilbert, everybody I know is telling me they listen to the podcast and guards are coming up to me and they're saying, you know, I always thought that you were someone who didn't seem like they belonged here in prison. But now that I know your story and I know that you're innocent, I just want to hug you and tell you I'm sorry. And, you know, that has meant so much to Leo to get that kind of affirmation because, you know, these guys don't talk about their cases, especially mm-hmm. with outsiders. You know, it's just like not done. And now these guys are listening to this podcast and realizing you know, that Leo's innocent. And, you know, he says he's been getting so many updates from like on visitation days, like other inmates, families on the outside are listening and they want to meet him and, you know, tell him good luck and they're how sorry they are. And it's just really moving. I think he's finally, finally getting like the kind of feedback that, um, you know, he's always wanted that people believe in his innocence. I think it's really validating for him, even though he can't listen to it. It's kind of some of the feedback is kind of trickling down to him. And so he's able to, you know, feel some of that. And we're glad he's he's able to feel a little bit of it because after all this time and all he's put into it, it's kind of crazy. He can't actually listen to it. Yeah, it really is. 
I, I know that his sister has been reading like the transcripts to him from like the last Aww. episode. And he said he got all choked up about the concert. You know, Gilbert came to the concert and he had heard, never heard that before. And I said, yeah, it's, um, it's one thing on the page, but it's one yeah. thing to actually hear it. You know, like I think I read that part four times and yeah. I couldn't get through it without like breaking up. And I think on the fourth one, I, there's a little bit of a break in my voice and we said, all right, let's go with that one. It's, it's realistic. You can't, you can't get through this. So <laughs> you might as well just be there. So it's all honest. Gilbert, Kelsey, I'm just going to pause you for a second. I think we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with more questions for you guys. Do not go anywhere. Sounds good. Sounds good. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Gilbert, listeners want to know, are you going to write a book about this? Because they know how impactful Devil in the Grove was, and they want to know if you plan to do something similar. Yeah. I mean, it's something I think about. I, I, I'm a big believer in the power of podcasts and what they can do to right or wrong. And, you know, a, a book, I, I've never gotten this kind of reaction from any of my books before. Like this kind of reaction mm. I'm seeing from like all these people writing me and, and, and it's just, it's just amplified and uh, exponentially. And so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of material that we couldn't get into the podcast. You know, one of the things is we were trying to do this parallel narrative that I sort of fantasized about doing is like Jeremy on one side, Leo, and eventually they, you know, meet somewhere and, and yeah, but it just, it didn't work on the audio side. I think it could work on the written side, but there's so much, um, so many characters who didn't make it into the podcast. Um, some detectives, it just, it just quite didn't quite fit. We had a, we have over nine hours. Um, but still it was, it was a, it was a labor to get that down. I, I, you know, honestly oh, yeah. believe that. And well, so four years of work. Absolutely. Yeah. And we went in some directions that, you know, we just like the conviction integrity review units. We did, we interviewed several conviction integrity review units. We went in that direction. What does it take to overturn it? And it just sort of felt like it was taking us out of the immediate story of Leo and Jeremy and, and Michelle's death. So we just sort of put that stuff to the side. Um, but there's a lot more there that we didn't really, really need in the podcast or didn't seem to work, but I think it would work in a book. So it's, it's something I'm thinking about, but I haven't decided. Am, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Leo is also contemplating doing some writing. Yeah, he he's talked about it. I I am envisioning some sort of collaboration between Gilbert and Leo. Mm. That's what I'm that's what I'm hoping for. So. I would love something like that. He's he's a he's a superb writer. I mean, he can reduce you to tears in, with his emails and letters. I mean, he's just such a thoughtful, emotional guy. There's things that he says sometimes that you know, like I don't really pick up until I hear it later and go, wow, did he just really say that? Like, he's just a really interesting storyteller and mm. it transfers to the, to the written page when he writes too. So I would be honored to do something like that. <laughs> well, we will hold our breath. Um, <laughs> and, and listeners also want to know, is the gang getting back together for another podcast, another case? You know, we, I, I don't even know how to answer that. We we have a couple cases that we're really interested in. We haven't really had a chance to explore them. I would love to. I I think that this team that I was working with, it just made this podcast so much better. Everybody brought in their individual skills and just raised the bar. When I look at some of the original scripts that I wrote for this while I was just waiting around for things, I said, oh, I might as well start writing. They are so bad compared to what we had now when we had collaboration like with Kara and Britt and Kelsey and Rux. Everyone came together and just sort of made everything better. And it was honestly, it was a dream team. I don't know if Kelsey was like your, your first time experiencing any kind of collaboration. You must think it's always going to be like this. But I'm telling you, what we had was really, really special in in everybody who's oh. being on the same pages no, I, I i can recognize that and yeah i would i would love for the team to come back together for a second season or another story or something so certainly open to that but uh if that happens the plans are still being worked out so yeah. <laughs> so the ultimate question is what is the status of Leo's case right now? Um, people are asking, does he have appeals left? Someone else asked, you know, the autopsy said that the killer was left-handed. Is Jeremy left-handed? Wouldn't that be important for, you know, some sort of appeal? What's going on? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll just address the left-handed thing because it is interesting, and Jeremy is left-handed. And, um, you know, I think there's a, a case to be made, like how do you stab in a car the first I, – I, we didn't really try to speculate so much about what exactly happened in the car um, because I, I think once once we believe all the blood was found outside the car – um, that's where her blood had pooled. I, I believe that she was killed mm. outside of the car and, you know, she was stabbed in both the front and the back of her torso. And so clearly like you can't really tell where Jeremy might've been kneeling or standing when he was doing this. And so to speculate about his left-handedness, I, d I don't think it's really relevant or even something that you could prove um, in this particular case. Yeah. So we've, we've asked, we asked the crime scene expert about that mm. and apparently like, unless you know the exact position of how mm -hmm. somebody was standing or kneeling as this happened, it's hard for that to be real evidence of anything. So unfortunately, even though it is, Jeremy is left-handed, um, not sure that that really can mm -hmm. prove anything. Yeah. And as far as the case goes, I mean, he's literally legally out of options. His last appeal had failed. Um, they, they appealed it to the Florida Supreme Court, which refused to hear it. Um, and so he's, unless there's some discovery of new evidence, um, which really seems kind of unlikely at this point, because you have physical evidence linking Jeremy to the scene and you have multiple confessions, detailed confessions. I'm not sure what else can arise. You know, I, I think the crime scene was, was, um, gone over in such a sloppy manner. There was evidence that was left behind that probably could have linked Jeremy there as well. I'm thinking particularly this box of cigarettes that was like right not far from the bloodstains um, Jeremy said he was smoking afterwards before he moved the body um, we asked him what kind of cigarettes he smoked Marlboro he would never have known that um, granted it's a common a common brand but there's only one pack of cigarettes near those bloodstains and the police photographed it as if it was evidence but never apparently collected never it. collected it right and and so there's a lot of evidence from the crime scene that you know, Jeremy said, you know, he, he wrapped her in, in a plastic tarp and dragged her down there. Well, if you look at the crime scene photos, you can see several plastic tarps right there in the bushes and the garbage, and it was never collected. So I don't know that, you know, you're ever going to get that again. And there's not like some video camera in a tree back in 1987. So I don't know where there's going to be any new evidence that's going to be more significant than having your fingerprints and multiple confessions linking you to the crime. Yeah. But just to clarify, Leo's really his only two options are being released on parole or some clemency effort. And of course, with parole, that's not the same as an exoneration. So even if he is released on parole, he will still be considered a guilty man. Sure. By the state. And does he have a parole date? Um, I don't think there's a date so far, but there should be a hearing sometime around March. Right. And, you know, that's going to be that's going to be an interesting hearing. I'm I'm curious if the state is going to show up again because the last three times that Leo has had parole and he, you know, he's, he served his minimum sentence of 25 years. Um, he's a model inmate. He's started programs. He, he says to us, you know, I had to invent programs to graduate from in, in, in prison. Um, he has like no disciplinary record. He's just, he's the model inmate. Yeah. I, right. I think it's been like, 16, 17 years since he's been written up for any sort of disciplinary thing. Yeah. That's, and all minor stuff. That never happens in prison. <laughs> right. But his refusal to apologize and take responsibility for killing Michelle is what's keeping him behind bars. And every time he's up for parole, the parole commissioners seem ready to release him. 
but then the state attorney or, or an assistant state attorney shows up, throws out the autopsy pictures and says, never apologize, never said, I'm sorry. And, and the commissioners just sort of flip and change their opinion and deny his parole. And it's well, will this time be different now that, you know, we have again, Jeremy confessing on tape to you guys. Do you think this time could be different? I think that the public awareness of Leo's case could be different. I think there could be, you know, a media scene at his parole, like expecting him to be paroled. I think, I think I know a lot of people in Florida who, who've told me they want, they plan mm. on t- attending that. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a large crowd there um, to see Leo get parole. Um, but, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Does, does the state attorney's office want to continue to, to resist this and, and to fight this and to sort of double down on Leo? Um, I think that will be a really interesting question because that parole is coming up in, in you know, just a few months. Well, I was, I guess, you know, one of the questions people keep asking is why is the state's attorney office so adamant on keeping this person in prison when we have someone confessing, we have the evidence, you know, everything you guys have said, what is going on? You know, it's just, I think it's just this culture of protecting convictions and, you know, this finality that's sort of built into the system. There's political reasons for it. They don't like to lose convictions. Um, sometimes, you know, in, in this particular case, the the assistant state attorney who prosecuted it is no longer alive. He was also Jeremy's prosecutor. And so it's complicated. You know, why is this guy going into a, an office by himself without a tape recorder and a witness and interviewing Jeremy about this particular crime? It's just like, so I think it's completely unethical. And and so I think they, they're not only having to defend the conviction of Leo, but now they have to defend their office because we're accusing their office of, of certain unethical behaviors. Um, and so I think it's just sort of a way of doubling down just, oh, it's just guys promoting a podcast. It's just the, you know, the media don't listen to them. We know what we're doing. They're completely opposed to conviction integrity review units in Polk County. You know, they told Kelsey in the interview that, you know, we get it right. You know, we don't need the conviction integrity review unit like they do in Tampa and Jacksonville. That is just so arrogant and just like anyone who says that, it's like people who are like, I'm not racist. They're probably racist if you need to announce you're not racist. <laughs> like, we don't get it. We don't get it wrong. You probably are getting it wrong. Right. And one of one, uh, Teresa Hall, we interviewed from the Conviction Integrity Review Unit in Hillsborough County. And she was like, you know, if if a plane falls out of the sky there's going to be an investigation because we don't want that to happen again. If a doctor or a surgeon loses a patient on the table that shouldn't die, we want an investigation. We want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, with lawyers who are dealing with life and death issues, for some reason, lawyers who sue airlines and you know sue doctors and hospitals, but they don't want their own work looked at, it doesn't make any sense. We know that they get cases wrong. We have a, a very healthy record of exonerations um, in this country of people who are wrongly convicted and released from death row. So you are getting it wrong. Why are you afraid of an investigation? Well, and to be clear for listeners, it is particularly designed that way by prosecutorial immunity, qualified immunity. So just so listeners know, this isn't a fluke. It is designed so they cannot be held accountable. Right. And and that's to me is like the most disgusting part of this thing is like, you know, we looked into the history of the of the 10th uh, state attorney's office and, you know, we found some cases of of wrongful convictions and we found evidence that state attorneys were hiding exculpatory evidence from the defense. And I just thought about that, like if and, and these guys, by the way, they get their name mentioned in a Florida Supreme Court 
opinion. They don't lose their job. They, they, they continue to prosecute after doing this and, you know, sending someone to prison for the rest of their life wrongfully. Um, there's no consequences. I was thinking if I was to say I'm writing a book like Devil in the Grove and I find a legal document where all the Groveland boys like confessed to their lawyers and said, we did this, you got to get us off. And I said, well, that doesn't fit my narrative. I'm hiding that. I'm going to put that in, in a box and never see it and not have it affect my narrative. You know, if, if I got caught doing that, I, my book would be pulled from the shelves and I wouldn't get another publishing sure. contract. Right. So I have more accountability than the state attorney's office does. Um, and so this whole thing about the integrity of the courts uh, being more important than, you know, the court of pub public opinion, I don't buy it. Yeah. So obviously this podcast got a lot of people riled up. How can they help Leo? Um, well, we do, we do have a petition out there. Um, I'm pretty sure it is on the Lava for Good website. It is a change.org petition that is, well, was put together by the Innocence Project of Florida who represent Leo. And so what, you know, they're calling for, what we are supporting the call for is a transfer of Leo's case to one of these districts that has a conviction integrity review unit, because we think if somebody is able to really take, you know, a look at the full case, at all the evidence that, at, you know, everything that's come forward over the years, um, they'll see exactly what we know, which is that Leo is innocent and that Jeremy Scott killed Michelle Schofield. And, um, you know, we're hoping that some sort of independent review can happen. And so the petition, signing the petition, getting more attention for that is kind of what we're, we're putting our energy towards right now. I don't know what, what else, Gilbert, you you're a little more tuned into this at this point. No, I mean, right now, uh, uh, that seems to be the thing, the, the stage that we're working for is like, we're just sort of supporting the F Florida Innocence Project's efforts to get this petition signed. I believe that there will be other things that will come up um, as as this sort of aftermath of Bone Valley sort of develops. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it could be in any direction, but we're, we're waiting. There's a lot of people listening to this in Florida and a lot of people have reached out and said they want to help and they want to mm -hmm. do something about this. And that was very much the feeling I had with Devil in the Grove when people started coming up to me saying, we're going to do something about this. And suddenly this political movement began. And sure enough, then it comes across the desk of the governor at the time. And that's, that's when the pardon started. So hopefully enough mm -hmm. people will listen and, and that kind of you know, gr grassroots effort will begin again. I don't know if this will surprise you guys, but a lot of people want to help Jeremy as well. They want to send him stamps. Um, will you be able to put out his mailing address so people can do that? You know, we're working on that right now. There's Jeremy's in a, a different situation than Leo because he's in a solitary confinement um, and he's not allowed to, nobody's allowed to receive stamps anymore. They, they cut that back at the, at, at the Department of Corrections in Florida. So all the mail has to go to this one clearinghouse in Tampa and then it gets delivered to the various prisons and, and Jeremy gets a copy of whatever letter you send. Um, we're trying to figure out a way because I've had a lot of people contact me saying they want to put some money in his canteen. They heard about, you know, how broke he was and he couldn't buy soap and they just wanted to reach out and help. And so we're trying to figure out a way to have maybe a middle person be the collector of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just haven't been able to solve it yet, but we're, we are working on it. So if people want to stay updated on, you know, the petition, how to contact Jeremy, where do they go? So with the petition, if you sign the petition, um, you will receive updates if 
you know, if there are any updates posted the peti- to the petition, um, you'll be notified of that if you sign it. So that is also motivation to sign the petition so you can get those kind of updates. But we're also, Gilbert and I are both on Twitter and are updating with whenever stuff comes through. Also Lava for Good, if you follow Lava for Good on social media, they're definitely going to be posting any updates um, related to this. So yeah, just, um, you know, be on the lookout for stuff on social media and with the petition. Hey, Maggie, I have a question for you. What are you working on right now? What do you have going on? Well, we are working on season two of Wrongful Conviction with me, Maggie Freeling, and that is going to launch January 9th. And you can find that in the regular Wrongful Conviction feed with me and Jason. And I'm very excited. This season is just some of the most egregious cases. We're really focusing on women. So everyone should listen. Um, And yeah. Oh, I can't wait. That's great. Gilbert, Kelsey, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for answering listeners' questions, my questions. We really appreciate it. Oh, Maggie, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to actually do an interview with you and and really talk to you. (laughs) Well, you interviewed me last time, so this has been... Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.